Nice. Uh, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Goggles Off, the show where we get outside the lab to talk to scientists about them and their research. Today, I'm joined by Sam Verbanek. Uh, Sam recently received his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from UCSB in 2020. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, man? I'm doing super good. Um, obviously, I broke my wrist a little while ago, like three days ago, so that's a little sucky. But other than that, the world's great. Uh, really excited about this interview. Same. Likewise. Yeah. Um, so while you were at UCSB, uh, it seems that the majority of your work was studying uh, the microbiome and its implications in human disease. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So um, coming into my time at UCSB, I didn't really know what I wanted to study, but when I joined my group, my, my PI, Irene Chen, I uh, was about to start a new clinical microbiome project uh, studying um, the microbiomes of chronic skin wounds. Um, so over the course of my, my PhD, I worked on some new methods to try to um, better process and prepare samples um, collected from chronic skin wounds to try to better elucidate um, how these microbial communities might contribute to chronic wound pathology. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really exciting field all around, the microbiome field, um, and this is just one little slice of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I can speak more to the actual meat of the project. Um, so chronic really wounds are, are really just wounds that uh, don't heal in the expected time frame, uh, given sufficient treatment. Um, and they're usually an underlying like comorbidity, so um, a complication that arises from an underlying disease. Uh, so the most prominent chronic wounds are, are diabetic wounds. Um, so uh, folks with diabetes can frequently um, get neuropathy in their extremities, meaning that um, they basically can't have as, uh, their, their sensation in their extremities isn't as strong as it used to be. Um, they also have lower circulation and, and changes in blood glucose levels. Um, and when they get a small cut or something on, on, a, on typically like their foot or their fingers, um, it can grow into a wound that, that has a really hard time healing. So there are lots of... I was reading... Sorry, what were you going to say? Sorry, I was reading um, that chronic wounds actually affect a lot of people. Like in the U.S. alone, it's, you know, 6.5 million people are affected. And then, you know, cost the healthcare system like $25 billion to treat these people. And like, like you're saying, though they're often associated with, you know, some other disease, they really impact a patient's quality of life in terms of, you know them being in constant pain from the, the wound or their mobility in terms of being able to move around because they're wounded. Um, and so being able to extrapolate the information from the microbiome, the microbiome and the communities living on them uh, to try to, you know, develop better uh, health protocols can really help a lot of people. It's a big deal. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's, it's a huge chunk of people um, that, that are affected by chronic wounds and that number is expected to grow because, you know, like, uh, two of the biggest predispositions right. for a chronic wound are obesity and diabetes, um, and and there's rising incidence of, of both of those um, as the world industrializes. So it's going to be a problem that continues to grow, and that's why we're trying to get ahead of it. Right. It's uh, it's interesting. I was looking at a graph yesterday that uh, showed, you know, in the past hundred years, infectious diseases has drastically decreased, whereas uh, diseases like from from like chronic diseases have have you know drastically increased mm -hmm. over time people being more allergic to peanuts and stuff like that and it's just kind of kind of weird it's like maybe as a society us getting more softer we're developing more <laughs> chronic conditions or i don't know i'm not really sure i'm not yeah i don't know that's yeah. really speculating um but uh you mentioned irene chen and during your you know i was reading your dissertation a little bit and you took a you took a, a good amount of of you know page 
um, or space to actually, you know, thank Irene and talk to her uh, about like kind of what she did to you. And you described it as if she took a chance on, you know, wild eyed scientists. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, you know, what did you mean there? Like, what, what do you mean she took a chance on you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So in, in my dissertation that, that Brandon's referencing here in my acknowledgement section, uh, the first paragraph is, is thanking my advisor for supporting me for the, the past five years as I, as I worked on my projects. Um, so what I mean, when, when I joined her lab, this was a, a brand new project, like I had said before. Um, and coming into graduate school, um, I had pretty much like no experience doing any sort of ecology, I wasn't really a microbiologist. I had never done any sort of clinical work. Um, and I had never written any sort of code, which is sort of required to do this type of research. Um, right. So my advisor, when I said, you know, she took a, a chance on sort of a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed grad student, uh, what I meant was that I was just so eager to um, go learn and, um, you know, really sink my teeth into like a new project and, and something that I had never ever done before, had no experience with. Um, and yeah, she, she uh, was so patient with me and, and entrusted me with a lot, um, even though I had no experience. And that's like, that's a huge gift to give someone, right? Like to give me the chance to, oh, big time. to just go try my best and, and learn what I could. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super grateful that, that she, that she did that. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, what did she, or, or what did you do before that? You didn't have any ecology or microbiology experience, but kind of what, uh, what did you do before you became a scientist? Did, was it always something you wanted to do, or uh, is it kind of you know you found yourself craving science later in life? Yeah, I mean, I I was always interested in in like STEM, like gen genuinely, like science, technology, and engineering, math was my jam growing up. Uh, I mean. In, in school, my favorite subjects were always my science classes and my math classes. I was I was captain of the math team in high school. Um, oh. Yeah, I was I was a mathlete. Um, but going in going into college, I went I went to Vassar College for my undergraduate studies. Uh, I was one of those classic, I'm going to go be an orthopedic surgeon kind of kind of kids, which nothing wrong with that. Mm, but that was mm. that was my mindset. I was I was super gung ho going to med school. Um, but my first semester. Oh, no, wait, it must have been my second, my second semester at, uh, in undergrad. I took a, a chemical research techniques class, um, which basically introduced us um, to a, a mini encapsulation of what it's like to be a research scientist, where we learned a method, um, and then we had to try to write like a little grant proposal based on that method to go explore something new mm -hmm. or extend that research. And then we, as a class, did a blind peer review of those proposals, and um, the proposals that, like, one that you know followed all. It was like the same NIH criteria for for getting an NIH grant, um, which everyone one yeah. got funded, quote funded, uh, and we got together in groups and went and did the the experiments. Uh, and so mine got funded, and uncharacteristically, my experiment that I proposed went off without a hitch. Um, it was super cool. Whoa. Um, which uh, there ended up being a paper that we wrote about it that's in the Journal of Chemical Education. Um, was that the, sorry, was that the lily pad? I think we had a conversation Yeah, it's the Lotus Leaf years, Project. Years back. Yeah, 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 the Lotus Leaf Project. Yeah, we yeah. can definitely dig into that a little bit more if people want. But that, that is, that's really where, where the flip switched for me, where I was like, oh, I could be doing research science. Like this, this uh, you know, really checks a lot of boxes for me in terms of things that I'm interested in um, and, and the skills that I have. Um, so that was it. I was off to the races from there and, and I did a couple years of 
material science stuff, some analytical chemistry, a little bit of molecular biology and protein biochemistry uh, in undergrad mm -hmm. before getting to grad school. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I think we should probably touch on some of your uh, publications that you talked about in your dissertation. Yeah, sure. uh, so I guess I'm not really sure the timeline. Um, so what came first, the improving, the improved swabbing uh, experiment or the debridement experiment? Uh, yeah. So the swab experiment came first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Describe Definitely. That? So um, the goal of my project overall um, was simply to try to characterize um, both the bacterial and viral fractions of chronic wound microbiomes. Um, and beyond just documenting uh, which different species of bacteria and viruses were present, try to identify some community structures and how they might correlate to clinical features or outcomes. So are there particular mm. groups of bacteria um, that are linked to healing or non-healing of these wounds? So in order mm. to investigate these communities, I need to be able to collect some materials from the wound. Um, and that's where the swabs come in. So, you know, we, we take a swab, uh, we use a particular technique to try to pick up a bunch of bacteria off the wound and viruses. Um, but then downstream, I needed a way to process those swabs to then recapitulate the entire community. Um, and one of the challenges here was that I was interested in the viruses as well. Um, and without getting mm -hmm. into too much of the details, but we needed to purify the viruses away from the bacteria. Uh, and so I worked on optimizing a, a technique for that. Um, and we published that in BMC Microbiology. Um, so yeah, in the end, wow. we were able to obtain uh, very high yield uh, bacterial swabs while also retaining this very pure viral fraction without a lot of bacterial contamination uh, using this simple sort of fractionation method that we had developed. Um, it's interesting that you you know you started getting really interested in or looking at the viral community as well as the you know bacterial community because traditionally when people talk about the microbiome or a little in the past people have been doing the majority of work on uh, the bacteria community which they estimated I think I read recently it's the 38 billion different kinds of bacteria uh, living on you um, but it turns out the virome is actually uh, expected to be much larger uh, estimated at 380 trillion in your body. So that's, you know, you can only imagine that they must have an impact in your overall physiology, f physiology and your health. And they must do something like in, they found that, you know, phages and viruses out in nature regulate biological communities. So, I mean, is it so crazy to think that they regulate our internal biological community? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So you, you used a, a magic word there, which is bacteriophage. Uh, so for those that are not familiar <laughs> with phages, those are, uh, those are viruses that infect bacteria. Um, and yeah, so a lot of these microbiome studies are really interested in what the bacterial communities um, can do, what their functionality is, you know, what are they metabolizing, how are the different bacteria interacting with each other, how are they interacting with other communities, etc. Um, and in recent years, people are really interested in how these different communities um, change their behavior or shift their composition over time. Um, since we've found that Oftentimes, uh, if there's a, a microbiome community that's associated with a disease state, it's sort of, it looks a lot different from the community that is in a healthy state. It goes from sort of Ooh. a symbiotic community where we're living in harmony with the microbes to a dysbiotic community where the microbes are now detrimental to our health. Um, but it's sort mm. of a mystery of what are the factors that, that shift these community structures around. And one of the big factors that's been largely overlooked until recently 
um, is this viral community, these bacteriophages. Uh, these viruses, you can imagine them infecting the bacteria and killing them. Um, and by killing particular members of the community, you're shifting the power structure there. Uh, you're making room for other right. bacteria to grow while you're killing off maybe other good ones. Um, and at the same time, these viruses are very smart. They're very sophisticated. Um, they can mm -hmm. exert all types of regulatory control over the metabolic systems of their hosts and change their behavior. So it's a really fascinating slice of the microbiome that um, we're just now really starting to, to look into. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it, is, it seems really cool that, I mean, most of the microbiome citations have really been happening in the past five to 10 years is when people have been really talking about it on the internet. Um, and it's just got to go hand in hand with, you know, the increasing computational power. I mean, you need so much computational power just to analyze and classify all these different viruses. Uh, and it's just, it's, it, it's honestly kind of crazy mind blowing. Just the fact that like computers can handle this much data at this point and that we're able to actually get information out of this that is useful in terms of the, the health field. Uh, I guess since we're already talking about the bacteriophages, this could be an interesting point to bring up your technology or your patent, which I think is so sick. I think it's like one of the most gangster things I've like ever heard. I know it's a patent between you, uh, is it Irene and then Ray? Uh, it's Juan or... Peng, Dr. Juan Peng. He's one of the postdocs in the Chen lab. Gotcha. And uh, you want to describe that technology a little bit, uh, how it works? Yeah, definitely. So um, a couple years ago, uh, Dr. Juan Peng joined our, our lab and, and our advisor, Irene. Uh, Irene Chen was you know, trying to work on some projects with him. Um, and one of the challenges that she had was that she wanted to develop a like rapid point of care uh, diagnostic test, which these days we're hearing all types of stuff about diagnostic tests, how we need them faster, cheaper, you know, all the different varieties. Everyone's heard about right. PCR, RT-QPCR, antigen tests, etc. cetera. Uh, but this was years ago that we were working on this guy. So uh, Irene wanted to work mm -hmm. on this test. And uh, Juan came up with a great idea of basically using the bacteriophage as a way to bind to a target and also produce um, a signal that we could read. And the way that we were going to achieve that was basically um, exploit the natural features of a bacteriophage. So for one, the bacteriophage uses particular proteins to identify its host, bacteria that it could infect. Um, but using some modern molecular biology techniques, we can tune which bacteria the bacteriophage is gonna bind to uh, by changing those proteins. So that allows you to test for different bacteria. So we've got our targeting uh, sort of sorted out. And then we need a signal generation technique or, or, or uh, method, I guess. And the way we were going to achieve that was through gold nanoparticle aggregation. Uh, so gold nanoparticles are exactly what they sound like. They are very, very small particles of gold. Um, and uh, when you just put them in solution, they uh, are sort of like a, the solution is sort of like a pinkish color. Um, but as they mm -hmm. aggregate, uh, those clumps of nanoparticles um, refract light differently and the whole solution changes color to a sort of darker violet hue. Um, so mm. by genetically engineering the bacteriophage coat proteins, so that's the outside of the viral capsid, um, to bind onto these gold nanoparticles, when we get enough of the bacteriophage and enough of the nanoparticles close, to, close enough together, then they all start aggregating and the whole thing, the whole solution changes color. Um, mm. So the way this works in an actual test is 
Uh, you take some bacteria that you're trying to identify or, or a, a sample that might be infected with a particular bacteria. You mix in some of these special bacteriophages and allow them to bind onto the bacteria. And then we wash away any bacteriophage that didn't bind onto the bacteria. So if our target is there, there will be bacteriophage all over it. And if it's not there, then there will be no phage left in the solution. And then we just add some gold nanoparticles. And if the bacteriophage is present, meaning that your target is present, then the whole solution will turn purple. Uh, but if there's no bacteriophage present, meaning your target is not present, then the whole solution just stays pink. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's, that's the, the diagnostic side of things. Um, it's a pretty neat test. We're still working on optimizing it for um, like a more like, like sample in results out type thing, less hands-on time right. um, and, and require right. less equipment. Um, and that's, we're still working on that. But this initial version was published, I want to say in PNAS, or I could double check, but uh, uh, like last year. I think it was, yeah, I think it was PNAS. Um, and then are, are you guys also using this gold nanoparticle technology? I don't know if I was reading this in a related art, article, um, but it seems that, you know, you have the phage bound to the gold nanoparticles and then the phage seeks out its bacterial target. Um, and then people are using UV light to heat up the gold nanoparticles and then in turn heat up the phage and the bacteria it's bound to and kill the bacteria and, and basically using phage and heat um, to, to end bacterial infections or, or kill bacteria yeah, that's, in, a, in a targeted manner. That's exactly right. So um, recently, this was, this was uh, earlier this year in 2020, um, Juan and some other members of our lab uh, published another article, um, this time repurposing this same um, sort of transgenic bacteriophage um, as, a, as a new type of antibiotic, basically. Uh, so bacteriophages have been explored as an antibiotic tool for a while now, um, as an alternative to small molecule antibiotics. Um, but the problem is that they're sort of uncontrolled. They're not really drug-like. Like if you're relying on the bacteriophage's natural life cycle, um, then you basically apply a little bit of bacteriophage, it infects a bacterial cell, um, and then it sort of starts replicating sort of uncontrollably. And you're, require, you're, you're just relying on that bacteriophage's natural ability to destroy its host, which sometimes can be overrided by bacterial defense systems. Uh, so what we sought to do was try to make the bacteriophage uh, like therapies a little bit more like drug-like, where we could apply a particular dose and know exactly how it was going to react <laughs> um, and mm. be able to kill the bacteria in a way that was independent of uh, the bacteriophage's life cycle. So that's achieved by simply swapping out these gold nanoparticles for gold nanorods, um, which can absorb a different wavelength of light, um, but they bind to the bacteriophage in the same way. And it's exactly like you said, Brandon, these bacteriophage with the gold nanorods all over them, um, you mix them into a solution or apply them topically um, to an infected um, area and the bacteriophage grab onto the bacteria. Um, you apply some near infrared light and it heats up those gold nanoparticles and it just ablates the cells. It just blows them up. Um, so the, so cool. I, I, I wish that I had the exact journal that this was published in too right now. It's either JAX or PNAS. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they did a great job showing that um, this works as a, as, as a mode of, anti, of, of antibiotic therapy. And um, even when you apply this to like bacteria on top of epithelial cells, epithelial cells survive. So like yeah, the human cells are, are relatively mm -hmm. undamaged by this. Um, so yeah, really cool as an antibiotic tool. Um, I've definitely been thinking about it lately as potentially like an anti-cancer drug. 
Um, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. We're, our lab is still developing it. Very, I mean, it's very cool. I, I kind of think about it when I first read of it. I was like, wow, it's like homing missiles targeting bacteria, you know, oh, and definitely. obliterate stuff with them. It's just so, so cool. Um, you kind of mentioned that the bacteria can resist the phage infection. Um, and it kind of just made me think of, you know, this idea that I've had in my head for a while. Um, just like this, like ongoing war um, between bacteriophages and bacteria and they're just efforts to you know, stop each other. Like a bacteria, you know, developing a stronger cell wall and then the bacteriophage being like, all right, let me develop a spike to get over that wall. Stuff like that. Just really, really crazy. Like a war that's going back way, way, you know, beginning of time. Oh yeah. It's been a, a billions year arm race. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the race to try to outsmart each other, bacteria and bacteriophage have come up with all kinds of clever tools that humans have discovered and exploited for all types of other purposes. Um, So, I mean, modern microbiology and molecular biology owes a lot to the relationship between bacteria and bacteriophage. Um, My favorite examples, sorry, what were you going to say? I think we're both going to say it, CRISPR, right? Oh yeah, of course. That's That's the one everyone thinks of is CRISPR. Um, Right, right. But what were you going to say? I was going to say, like, even restriction enzymes, like... You know, restriction enzymes are one of the original molecular biology tools for just chopping up DNA and being able to help us clone um, different genes into plasmids. Um, before, in the, in the pre-CRISPR days, we were using restriction enzymes, and even still we do quite a bit. Uh, but I mean, those, those, mm-hmm. those were born as, as a defense mechanism against bacteriophages. Um, but yeah, CRISPR is the big one. That's the one everyone thinks of. Um, and still a lot of people right. don't even realize that it was, it's actually like a bacterial immune system. Uh, to protect them against yeah. an invading bacteriophage. Um, yeah, so cool. Um, and it's kind of cool that they developed, like, or discovered CRISPR, not really trying to trying to find it, not looking for some sort of gene editing tool, but rather just kind of studying bacteria just for, you know, science's sake. And then they, they're like, oh, my God, look at this really powerful tool that we can use to, you know, edit genes. Yeah. That's crazy. And, I, I mean, um, I've been doing lots of viral bioinformatics over the past few years, and... Um, so many of these viral genes in these new bacteriophages that we discover have no homology to anything we've seen before. So who knows what other CRISPR-ish type systems are out there uh, that could change the way we do yeah. biology in the future. Um, it's a big... Just a treasure trove. Oh, yeah. Um, that's so cool. Uh, we should probably get into the next paper, right? The debridement paper, um, which... For, I guess, people who don't have never heard debridement before, I hadn't before this, it's where you, you know, take, you know, there's a wound that's infected and then you scrape off the biological community there, or, or how does that yeah, work? Yeah, so debridement is a, is a standard of care for, for chronic wound treatment. Um, it's, it's the physical removal of any sort of, like, dead necrotic tissue or biofilms okay. that can form on the wound. Um, right. And the idea is that you're both cleaning off the wound bed so that, you know, there's no uh, debris or extra bacteria present. Um, and also, depending on the type of debridement, you might even be inducing uh, an acute wound, basically re, re-cutting open that wound to try to kickstart um, the healing process mm. again. Uh, oftentimes, these chronic mm. wounds are sort of stuck in a state of just pathological inflammation. Uh, and in, by inducing that acute wound, um, you can sort of try to hope to push it over the edge and bring that extra oomph to um, move on to the next stage of healing. Um, so yeah, we were, we were really interested um, to see if there are any differences um, in the microbial communities of these wounds before this debridement process or after, um, both from a logistics standpoint, so we know for future studies um, when we need to sample the wounds, but also from a clinical standpoint, 
um, to see if there are particular bacteria that are being enriched in wounds that you know maybe haven't been debrided as, re as recently. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what what I, I was reading it it sounded like you did find certain bacterial communities that were associated with wounds that weren't healing properly. Um, can you speak to which ones those were? I think Enterobacter yeah, was yeah, one of them, and just definitely. these uh, these anaerobes or thing or organisms that can be anaerobic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a quick rundown of, of how we went and did this study in the first place. So to try to address this, this question of, are there differences in community before and after debridement? Are there bacteria that are associated with healing or non-healing? Um, and just to generally test our protocols and methods, uh, we went and did a, a small clinical study uh, at, a, at a local hospital in Santa Barbara, um, the Goleta Valley Cottage Hospital at the Ridley Tree Center for Wound Care Management. Um, and we collected samples from 20 patients um, before and after their wounds had been debrided, and then one from healthy skin as well. Um, and then we went and analyzed the whole bacterial communities and the viral communities, which is coming. But the bacterial communities uh, findings have been published in uh, NPJ Biofilms and Microbiomes recently. That was actually May 1st, so only a couple weeks ago. Um, but yeah, in short, we didn't really find any significant differences in these communities before and after debridement. Um, which means that either A, our sampling method doesn't have the resolution to tell the difference between them, or they really are just comparable. But we mm. did find that there were particular uh, bacteria that were associated with wounds that healed or did not heal. Um, and what we found particularly interesting was that the bacteria that were associated with wounds that didn't heal tended to be these facultative anaerobic bacteria, meaning that they can grow with or without oxygen. So that's really important because the wound uh, environment is a pretty dynamic environment. Um, you know, it's constantly changing the amount of oxygen that's in there, uh, both from um, the oxygen tension in the blood when it's reaching the wound, um, the, the biofilms that form on the wound have oxygen gradients, and then a lot of procedures can oxygenate the wound bed as well, whether it's debridement or hyperba hyperbaric oxygen treatments. Um, and just by identifying this association, we sort of have a new hypothesis to test in the future, uh, which is that these facultative anaerobic communities are a little bit more resilient to changes in the oxygen, uh, the, the oxygen levels in the environment compared to communities that are dominated by either just aerobic or anaerobic bacteria. So those that grow with or without oxygen. So that's sort of like our big finding in this paper. Um, is that we, we found that the, the wounds that healed had more of these anaerobic bacteria and the wounds that didn't heal had more of these aerobic and facultative anaerobic bacteria. Um, all just associations for now, and it'll be really exciting in the future to see if people can do some more causation studies. Right, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because, you know, it is exciting to find that correlation, but then, you know, that this, my old high school psychology teacher is in my head saying correlation does not prove causation, yeah. so it's like... Uh, it'll be interesting to keep keep it going and keep identifying, see if, if this holds up to be true, these facultative anaerobes um, preventing healing. Um, so one thing I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about is, you know, uh, what's next? You know, what's the next move in terms of your scientific career? I, I know you are still going to be working in the Chen Lab as a postdoc or... Yeah, so I actually just moved down to Los Angeles. The, the Chen Lab is moving from UC Santa Barbara to UC Los Angeles. So um, given the pandemic situation, we don't know exactly when we're going to be moving anymore, but we are, we are moving yes. down here. Um, I'm here. Um, and I'm going to continue this work as a postdoc. Uh, we have another study coming up, um, this time focusing just on the diabetic foot ulcers. 
Um, and we're collecting samples from uh, the All of You Medical Center in Silmar. Um, and yeah, we're, we're now more interested in how these communities change over time. So we're going to be collecting samples from these chronic wounds uh, longitudinally uh, over the course of healing um, to try to document how these, these communities change as the wounds heal or as the wound persists. Um, so we're really oh, interested so in these cool. shifts between the community structures um, and how they eventually return back to the healthy state and join the healthy skin microbiome. Um, and our previous work focused mostly on just who was there, like which bacteria were present. And now we definitely right. are more interested in uh, like what are they able to do. So we're going to be doing more work on the actual functional potential of these communities, uh, not just the taxonomic presence of, of which bacteria are there or not. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the big, the big next step for us. Uh, and as for me, um, I am sort of riding out this postdoc. I'm going to try to make the most of it. Um, Try to, try to get as much work done as I can, um, and then see where we can go from there. I'm either going to apply for some grant funding and maybe try to work my way towards becoming a professor, um, maybe apply for some startup funding and further develop the technology that I worked on with Juan, the, the detection and, and uh, antibiotic technology. Um, mm -hmm. And if all that all if all that falls through, then um, I'll, I'll go I'll go happily find a job in a government lab or or an industry. Didn't you used to joke that uh, I don't know if everything falls through, you'll just become a baker, <laughs> and you bake your own sourdough bread. That is also true. I was pretty early on the sourdough craze uh, during my my PhD <laughs> student days. Um, I haven't I haven't uh, baked any in a while, but you know what? I would be very happy doing that. Um, you never know. That's awesome. I, you're the only guy I know who makes his own bread. <laughs> Um, it's, it's so cool to hear that you're doing, you know, so well and so many tremendous things are popping off for you. Um, I think it's, I think it can be hard for people to, you know, see figures like you doing so well and be like, oh, were they always like that? Or you know, maybe they're just lucky or, you know, they just work harder than me or they're better than me. But like, uh, was there any times in your life where, you know, you had a really crappy job that you hated or, or, you know, just adversities that you faced? Like, were you, or were you, or were you always just a successful <laughs> scientist, just living the science? Dream? Uh, absolutely not. I was not always a successful, I am still not always this successful. Um, you know, you, you and I've talked about this before. I've worked like so many, um, like classic teenager jobs, you know, I, I worked at a grocery right. store bagging groceries. I worked at a pizza place, Froyo shop. I was, I, I, I spread mulch for a summer. I worked as a landscaper, worked as a caterer for three years. Um, what was the worst one? Oh, the worst one. Probably the, gro probably the grocery store, bagging the groceries and pushing the carts. That was in Arizona. Really? It was very hot. My favorite was the catering oh, job. Yeah. The catering was amazing. That was actually a blast. Um, and you get the free food? Yeah, too. you get the free food. You get to hang out at these great parties, blah, blah, blah. No. Being a scientist is much, much more fun. Um, I, I really do um, love it despite all the ups and downs. Um, and no, it, it, you know, it, it, it comes in waves. It's... Even today, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Verbanic. I got my PhD a couple months ago. I still feel, you know, imposter syndrome. Um, I still have experiments oh. that don't work and it still feels like the world is ending. Um, and that's just sort of the, the game. But um, I just sort of always tell myself to just keep going. Um, just keep showing up one day at a time, one foot in front of another. Um, and just always do your best and, and focus more on, on the learning and, and growing and, and less on the actual results. And then the results tend to follow. So, um, yeah, it's uh, there, there's something I tell people all the time about being a scientist. Cause people often think that we're like, 
really smart and you know we don't make mistakes but in actuality it's like I'm a professional failure like I fail every single day I go into the lab and then eventually every once in every blue moon something doesn't fail and my heart just feels you know uplifted and everything's great and the world's amazing but for the majority of time you know your experiments aren't working or you know there's you're running into you know unanticipated problems that you didn't think were going to come up and the experiment's actually way more complicated than you thought or you know maybe you spilt over a bottle of reagents while you're trying to you know do an experiment and it just can you know so many failures can happen and I think it's important to you know stay like you and have a really positive can-do attitude and be like you know I'm going to keep showing up I'm going to keep trying and eventually this is going to work because you know can-do attitude and hard work I mean that's a hard combination to beat really oh yeah man. Um, no you, you you hit the nail on the head like it's one of the crazy things about about being in science is that you know you you go online you see everyone's papers you go to the conferences you see everyone's posters and you're like wow everyone's doing this amazing work like they had no roadblocks no hurdles but but the <laughs> truth is everyone's in the same boat like you're only ever seeing everyone's best results you, you're not seeing the you know you're seeing the one time that things did work or the three times that things worked so they could have their stats be good. Um, but you're not seeing the, the 90 times that things didn't work. And right. it doesn't mean that it's not good science. That's just the process. Like, you know, every failure, you're, ruling, you're, you're ruling something out and, and finding a way to move forward. You're one step closer to succeeding. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I cannot even tell you how many times I have had failed experiments uh, in my scientific career. Um, um, should we... You want to swap biggest failure stories, like biggest like, I don't know mishaps. I know I know mine. Mine actually occurred uh, when I was an undergraduate. I had I was going to label some RNA, uh, so not DNA, uh, ribonucleic acid. I'm going to label this with uh, fluorescent dye, and you know I have a a stock that contains all my RNA, so just you know a mill or you know two milliliters of RNA, which is really really expensive. And then I had a substock which I'm supposed to label. So just a really small portion of that main stock that I'm supposed to label. And I accidentally label the main stock and like ruin, I don't know, it must have been thousands of dollars of RNA. Oh, no. Like just messed up. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and my advisor at the time, uh, Renaje, who uh -huh. you know, uh, I, I told him about it and he was just, he was really cool about it. He was like, yeah, mistakes happen. Don't do it again. Just try to learn from it, oh. you know? But. That's my biggest, like, in terms of dollars, like, down the drain, like, I messed that one Yeah. Well, I have a lot. Um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one really short one and one that's a little bit longer. So, my, okay. my like, biggest, like, worst, most expensive one was my very first uh, attempt at doing this, like, clinical skin microbiome stuff. Um, we went mm -hmm. and collected some samples... And I went through like all this process of like, you know, we went through all the ethics paperwork to get them and we spent all the money to get all the equipment and all the samples. And, you know, I, I spent weeks processing all of them and sequencing them and I get all the data back and the data is absolute garbage. Like I completely failed at being, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really hard. It's like a, it's a small amount of bacteria that you're trying to sequence. It's really it's low biomass sure. off, of, off of just plain skin. There's not a lot of bacteria there. So it's understandable, sure. but... It was, uh, you know, months long, countless hours put in, many thousands of dollars for nothing useful. But everything we learned from that was piped into our second try and we got tons of excellent data. And that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had such a huge failure the first try. So there you go. But my other, my, my like, the one that comes to mind right away when I think of like 
one of my favorite failures ever. My first ever high throughput sequencing project in grad school, um, which I ended up doing tons of these later, but this was my very, very first one. It was like I'd been in the lab for like three months and Irene asked me to do this project. Um, and I was, you know, learning how you're supposed to prepare all of your samples for sequencing and, you know, which, which different like priming sites I needed to add, blah, blah, blah. And I prepare like, I don't know, 50 samples for sequencing and I'm all proud of myself. It all looks like perfect to me. Like there's nothing suspect. And I, I bring all my samples over to the sequencing core and I give them the samples and um, they go to sequence them and they, they write back to me and they say, hey, we got uh, no data back from your samples can you go back and like Sanger sequence some of them to see just to make sure everything's right? And so I went and looked at the the priming sites that I had added and I was missing uh -huh. like eight nucleotides on either side of my target sequence. And those <laughs> were the nucleotides that you needed to get the sequencing primers on there to actually sequence your samples. Right. So I completely botched this library. And again, like waste of probably you know thousand two thousand dollars to do this um but i've prepared dozens of libraries since then and all of them have sequenced relatively flawlessly um and every single time now i look at my my oligos and i'm like is the priming site there to be absolutely certain so that's that that one is my favorite one just because it was so comical to have them write to me and be like yeah you got zero gigs of data back from this <sighs> oh my goodness yeah. i mean it seems like yeah i mean just again your very healthy relationship with failure like using the failures to you know inform your next decision and then actually getting a success out of it i mean that's that's what it's all about as opposed to taking a failure and being like, ah, oh, well, I suck at library prepping. I guess <laughs> never do that again. But, you know, that's, that's not the way to win. That's not the way to become a winner. It's okay to wallow um, for a little bit, but then you got you to gotta <laughs> lift yourself back up and keep going. Dust it off, you know? Like. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of that, what, what's like, if you could, you know, give a young scientist or like you, yourself as a young scientist, maybe just first starting off on, you know, the Lotus Leaf Project, um, you know, what would you kind of like say to yourself in terms of, you know, what would be some advice you would give to yourself? Um, I think I'd say, for one, like, go easy on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. I'm definitely, and still am, like, my biggest critic, um, which is, like, not always the healthiest thing. So, number one, be gentle to yourself. Be patient. Two, um, don't worry about other people's uh indicators of success like focus on just learning what you can um and and doing your best like that's the most you should really be asking of yourself if you get too hung up on oh well, i didn't you know publish this many papers or i didn't get them in this journal or i didn't get the grade that i i wanted in this class then like you're you're just bogging yourself down um, with things that aren't really necessarily going to matter that much in the long run. Um, as you're developing as a scientist, if you can just focus on like growing your skills and, and getting the most out of the work that you can do, then like all of those other things are going to fall into place. Um, and like, yeah, I think the, the last one is have an open mind and, and have fun. Like there's the, the, like it's such a great time to be getting into, 
um, biology, biochemistry, molec bio, any of it. Like the field is exploding. Uh, and that, that's true of a lot of different sciences too. So, you know, don't get, don't get pigeonholed into one thing. Like there's so many cool things out there. Keep an open mind. Um, I didn't want to do this project when I first started and it ended up being like one of the most fulfilling things ever. So if I hadn't had an open mind, um, I might've missed out on that. And then, yeah, try to, try to have fun. Like it is fun to do science and there are so many great parts of it. So, you know, it can be really easy to look at it as like work or, you know, something tedious, but you know, if you focus on having fun, then, um, yeah, again, I think it just makes everything better. So yeah, I think that that's my advice. It's a lot. It was pretty mixed, but, oh. uh, hopefully it means no, something that's good. to someone. No, super good. I, I'm definitely going to incorporate that, uh, into, you know, my, my growth as a scientist and try to try to use some of that information. I hope some of the listeners will as well. Um, I guess kind of like closing statements. What do you think, you know, is in the future of, you know, microbiome studies? What do you think that, you know, the next step is, you know, maybe 20 years from now, uh, how can this technology or, or, or investigations into the microbiome, um, help inform human medicine? Yeah. I mean, it, that is a totally open book right now. Like people have no, no idea, but if I had to guess, uh, I think we're going to keep uncovering ways that, um, our bodies interact with these incredibly diverse and highly functional communities um, that we have been living quietly with for our entire existence. And I think we're going to be surprised to um, find out how big of an influence they have um, in, our, in our health um, and in disease. And technology-wise, um, I would not be surprised if in the next 10 to 20 years we see more microbiome-oriented therapeutics coming to market. Um, one's meant to modulate both uh, the community structure and function. So you can envision people using uh, particular microbes to modulate how our gut digests food to get better nutrition from more simple food sources. Um, or modifying the skin microbiome to help fight off disease or be an active diagnostic tool. Um, so there's like so many different way things that you could do with it. Um, and I think as we learn more and as our techniques um, get more advanced, um, we're going to have greater control over it and it'll be sort of integrated into our, our whole approach to, um, to human health and medicine. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, something that Irene told me about uh, years ago and I kind of stumbled across uh, while researching for this interview, um, you just reminded me of it right now, is uh, when you're describing you know, new methods for uh, replacing or treating a microbiome or, you know, trying to, trying to give some, a hel an unhealthy microbiome, you know, make it healthy again. And the nastiest treatment that I've heard of right now uh, is the fecal matter transplant, oh, yeah. right? uh -huh. which is like exactly what it sounds like, but it's actually super successful, right? So these people have a microbiome that's, you know, all bad and it's causing them all sorts of chronic issues. And then you take somebody else's, you know, poop and put it into them <laughs> and, you know, flush out all the, the bad microbiome community and replace it with this good one. And it actually really helps a lot of people. It's been very successful. So the microbiome is very important in terms of, you know, regulating our health. And I think you're exactly right. I think it's going to be a huge deal uh, going forward in the next 10 to 20 years and actually helping us uh, do medicine better and more efficiently in a smarter Absolutely. way. Absolutely. It's amazing to, you know, see how successful these FMT treatments have been. 
Um, and I do mm-hmm. think that in, yeah, 10 to 20 years, we're going to look back on that and be like, wow, that was like such a like crude way to treat a microbiome disease because then we're going to have um, so many new tools with so much more precision um, to treat different microbiome disorders. But it is, you know, it's paved the way um, for, for these types of, this type of research. Um, and yeah, it's gonna be fascinating. I mean, one of the coolest areas is the, the gut brain axis that people talk about all the time. How, how does our, our gut and the mm-hmm. microbes in our gut um, influence um, like our, our, our brains? Um, so right. tons of work on, on gut brain axis and neurodegenerative diseases and depression and all kinds of stuff. So who knows? Big, big, uh, Crazy. it's, it's Pandora's box. So anyone out there who's thinking about working on it, I, I invite you the more, the more, the merrier. Love it. Um, well, awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Verbanic. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, anything you want to say? Anything, you know, final remarks? Uh, no, that was a blast. Thanks for having me, Brandon. It was, it was uh, great to be here. And, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where, where things bring you in the future, man. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, best of luck in all the, all the things in your future. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Later.